0: Good morning. Morning. Um, Scott was asking me earlier, has it sunk in yet? And I said, I don't know. Um, But this is real. Like, it should sink in right now, right? I hope. I hope. Um, I am genuinely excited. um, And it is my honor. Thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for welcoming my family. And I'm excited to call you family. Amen. 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 Um, I get to join what what has been an amazing series through the teaching of this church, and today I get to talk about one of the most difficult uh, ch- choices that we 're going to make in life, and that 's the relationship choice um, and I 'm honored to do it because it seemingly allows me the ability to um, kind of piggyback off of what I got to teach the last time I was here months ago, so it 's almost like part b it 's really strange. But a little bit of irony, and I think the Lord knows what he has for us, and I believe he has something really important for us today. So what I'd love to do is this. I want to give due honor where it is due. I want to ask you to pray with me as we get into the relationship choice, because the relationship choice is one that's really imperative, and it takes a lot of maturity on our part. So let me just pray, and we'll start to unpack what God has for us. So Father, this morning, we don't want to misconstrue who, in fact, is teaching, When the the rich young ruler came to you and he said, good teacher, he was very clear about who should be speaking. He had seen your life, he had seen your ministry, he had seen what you had done, and God, he could attest that you were from God. And so today, Lord... I say that you are God, and I want you to have your way, and I want you to come and teach us. I want you to speak to us, speak through me. I want you to take your word, and I want you to do what you do with your word. I want you to cut away our flesh, and I want you to help us look more like you when we leave this place than, God, maybe when we walked in. I pray that we would choose to be in relationship today over being right. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We live in a fallen and a broken world, and what that means is we have all struggled in sin, and how many of us here, like me, have broken relationships? You've got relationships where there have been hurt, there have been hang-ups, maybe you've formed some habits. How many of you, like me, have broken relationships in your life? Amen. Okay, so here's the thing. Broken relationships will continue to be broken when we choose When we choose, listen, we're in choices, when we choose to continue to fight for a couple things. To fight for being right, to fight to be justified, or to choose to just simply not forgive. When we're hurt, we have a tendency to do something. We put up walls. When we hurt or we hurt someone else, we put up walls between us and others. And that's something that God never intended. Now, I've heard it said and I've heard it abused that we are to guard our heart. And that is true. The Old Testament taught that. But what we have a tendency to do is we start in a good place with guarding our heart and we allow walls to go up between us and others that the enemy actually uses a tactic to isolate us from others. And that was never intention. In fact, the first and greatest commandment was about relationship. The second commandment was just as important as the first and it was about relationship. The first commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, just like it, was love as God intended. Both of those are about relationship. Neither one of those are about you or I being right. Amen? So we have to choose relationship over being right. And the first point I want to make as we open here is this. We have to tear the walls down that we've allowed to be built between us and others. We've got to be willing to choose to take those down. And the way that we do that is this. Whether we are repairing or maintaining relationships so that they flourish... Whether we are repairing or maintaining relationships so they flourish, so they're healthy, we have to have a kingdom perspective. We have to have a mindset that exceeds the one of the earthly realm because we have a million reasons why we are right, don't we? We have a million people that'll pat us on the back and say, You are right, and justify our bitterness, right? And don't you love to find them? When you've been hurt, don't you love to go to those people who are just gonna pat you on the back and say, You had it you had it right? So if we're gonna be in healthy, whether repaired or maintained relationships, we have to have a kingdom respect and we have to have a kingdom mindset. In Matthew five seven it says this Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Anybody need mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Peter got into this with the Lord, and as he was following him, he'd left everything that he'd had to follow Jesus to become a disciple, eventually known as the Apostle Peter. And the way that he gave away the love of Jesus would be the gospel that he would drop, and churches would literally form around that. That's how we got here today, the New Testament church. But when Peter was asking the Lord, okay, what must I do in order to forgive? Is it okay, like, when I forgive, if someone hurts me up to seven times, can I forgive them seven times and that be okay? Is that good? Because Peter understood with his Jewish background that number seven was the number for purification. So he was asking rather generously. So if, if I forgive someone, like, up to seven times... Does that make me holy? Does that make me right with you? Am I, am I righteous if I do it seven times? And Jesus responded, and then he followed with an example, and I want to go ahead and jump right into it. In Matthew 18, it says, I tell you as many as seven times, but Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven has been compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Before we go into verse 26, let me just stop there. Let me explain what's happened. Jesus is referencing the kingdom of God to this king and the the father in heaven being like this king. And what he's saying is a servant came who had an inexcusable debt, a debt that was a life debt, one that would never be paid back during his entirety. So what he was saying was if, if I, you were to pay me back, it means you're going to live a life of slavery paying off this debt. Or if you can no longer work, you'll be enslaved in prison and your kids will work off the debt for you. This is going to continue to follow you for generations. It is not payable. And so, this king, this 10,000 talents, was owed a life debt by this servant. And it says at verse 26, at this understanding, at this point, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. How can he pay back a debt that is inexcusable? How can he pay back a debt that will never be paid back? It'll be passed to his wife and his children. But he says, be patient with me and I'll pay you everything. It says in verse 27, Then the master of the servant had compassion. He released him, forgave him the entire loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Stop. Stop. What just happened was an individual who had an inexcusable debt, one so surmountable that his life would never pay it back. His wife's life would never pay it back. His kids' lives would never pay it back to the king. And he simply fell at the king's feet, begged for God to be merciful, and the king turns and says, it's forgiven. How much of it? All of it. In fact, I'm going to keep no record of wrongs. First uh, Corinthians, Corinthians 13, the passage on love says, true love keeps no record of wrongs. So he says, I'm going to forgive not just a portion, not just half, not just your wife's portion or the kid's portion. I'm going to forgive all of it. Every aspect of this debt is now wiped and you're clear of it. I remember it because I remember what you owed me. This old adage, when I first came into the church and I first came to God, I was told that Jesus forgives and forgets. And that really did a number on me because I kept wondering, how can Jesus forget if I remember? He's supposed to be perfect. How does he still, How's he forget? How can I forget? I must be so sinful that I keep remembering everything I did. Here's the reality. Jesus knows precisely what you did. He never forgot it, but loves you still. It's a deeper love of passion. He keeps no record of wrong. He doesn't hold it against you any longer. He knows that you did it. See, our problem is we have a tendency to still hold ourselves responsible for stuff we did when he forgave. So, I'm going to read on, but I want us to really understand the level to which this man's debt has been relieved. It says, Then he went out and he found a servant who owed him, and he owed him a hundred denarii. This is equal to three months' worth of wages. Okay? Three months worth of wages or a hundred days worth of wages, this man was owed. And he said, he grabbed him, choking him and said, pay me what you owe. Though I was just relieved a life debt and you owe me far less, pay me what you owe. This fellow servant fell down at his feet and began begging him. He said, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing now, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Does that sound familiar? And could this three months worth of wages actually be paid back? This means yes. He says, If you will simply pay me what is owed, if you'll give be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed because they understood exactly how much this person had been relieved, went and reported it to their master and everything that had happened. Verse 32, then after he had summoned him, the master said to him, you wicked and unforgiving servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy upon you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless everyone of you who forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now, those last few words are really important. I want you to grab onto them. Forgiveness from your heart. Anybody here ever said, I forgive you, and not really forgive? Anybody, anybody ever say the words, they utter the words, I forgive, but you actually didn't forgive. You just kind of filed it and kept it there and brought that one out later. Ask your spouse. They know. Okay? So, from your heart. Now, here's my first point I want to make today. And this is the most important point you're going to see all day. I want you to keep it up here. If we want to be in right relationship with people... We, got to, we have to stop keeping score. What do I mean by that? Well, he slandered me. He lied about me. He, he stole from me. She hurt me. She invited me to the thing and then she ignored me. She did all these things unto me and I've been filing and I'm keeping score. I've been showing up and tallying every time they hurt me, every time they put something against me, I have a tally for it. If you want to be able to be in right relationship with others, you have to stop keeping score because Jesus didn't keep score with you. He relieved you a life debt. There's this amazing quote by C.S. Lewis from the, the book, The Weight of Glory. I'm going to read more of it in a moment, but I want to Pull this out. It says this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Hey, listen. Point A to this one. We can't keep score. I want to bring it up. I forgive because I am forgiven. Listen. Hey. It doesn't say... I forgive to an extent, I, I forgive a portion, I forgive who I want to forgive, I forgive those who look like me, I forgive those who dress cool to me, I forgive those who are kind of like, you know, people I want to hang out with. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that you would love your enemy, that you would pray for those who persecute you, that you would literally, that you would pray favor upon those who have tried to get one over on you, that you would... Bless those who curse you and love those who hate you. Does Jesus, if He leaves no room for the enemy, how much room does He leave for just the acquaintance or the friend? I forgive because I was forgiven just like this wicked servant, because we were all the wicked servant, was forgiven. And then, even more so, part B. The other harsh reality in this truth is this. The unforgiving become unforgiven. The wicked servant comes back to the king and he says, You wicked and unforgiving servant. I forgave you a life debt. He owed you three months worth. You couldn't forgive him that. No, no, no. we're, We're not playing games anymore. Look, if you don't understand the grace that has been given unto you, if you haven't truly embraced that grace, then the grace is gone. Now, before you work yourself into a theological like framework that will mess with us here, listen. What this is talking about is this, and I'm going to unpack it in a moment, about what it looks like in your life. It says, he was sent off to the torturers, and that torture not only extends in the, into the eternal life, the, the exit, but it, it, it actually tortures us here. How many of you understand the weight of bitterness How many of you understand it hurts you to carry resentment? It tortures you. It eats you up inside. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about one who would lose their salvation. What it's talking about is one who never truly embraced salvation because they didn't understand the life debt. They were actually forgiven. They were simply simply responding and begging. God answered. And they didn't understand the weight to which they've been forgiven. Do you understand the weight to which you've been forgiven? It was undeserved. It was inexcusable. And it put the one who is pure and spotless, right there for each of us. And he took it willingly. But see, the reason we have a tendency to fight for that, the reason we have a tendency to not want to forgive, and you know that is the key, right? The key to every broken relationship in my life is just dependent on my willingness to forgive or not. I'm the one that keeps them broken. I have to own that. It's my unwillingness to forgive that keeps my relationships broken. But it's because I believe, and this is my next point, I want to unpack it if we can, that life is somehow fair. <laughs> and I didn't read that in here. I believe somewhere in life that I've been treated unfairly and I should be treated fairly, right? Well, let me, let me be clear. Fairs are a place where you get cotton candy, and you ride rides. Did you know cotton candy was actually made in Tennessee, in Nashville, by the way? It came from here. I didn't know that. By a dentist of all people. (laughs) Came up with cotton candy from here. That's what fares are. Life is not fair. Fair. In Luke 15, famous passage, and I love it. It's considered the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. I believe it should probably be called the parable of the running father. More so than it is the prodigal son. It says um, in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate I have come that has come to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. I'm going to come back to verse 14 in a second. Here's what's happening. In Jewish culture, you need to understand that the birthright, you probably learned this uh, if you ever studied Genesis, was, uh, was very important. The birth order was very important. The blessing went to the oldest, okay, the oldest son, So the oldest son was entitled to 66 and two-thirds percent of everything the parents had. That was their inheritance. The other third was split between any younger sibling. Now, we only know of two sons in this story, and so that that second son was going to get a third. And what happens in this story is this. Jesus says it's, it's like this. The younger son came for his third, and he looked at his dad, and he said, look, I hate you. I'm not willing to wait till you die to get my inheritance. I want it now. See, Matthew wrote it a little kinder than what actually took place here. He looked at him and said, I I hate you. I don't want to wait till you die. I want my inheritance now. And I'm going to take it. And here's the thing. The father who loves his son willingly gives it. Anyone, any preschool parents here ever heard, I hate you? <laughs> ever heard that? It's kind of like that preschool fit takes place right here from an adult, which is hard to accept. I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me what is due me. And how many of you loving parents, when your preschooler looks at you and says, I hate you, have to take a deep breath, you know? but then you pick him up and you hold him and you show him just how much you love him. That's what happens here. He willingly lets it take it. It says that he he runs off to a far and distant land, squanders it, and after he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck the country that he was in so that he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods of the pigs he were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he had come to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying in hunger. Verse 18. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but please make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, here's what's happening. This guy has come to his senses. He recognizes that he looked at his dad and said, I'd wish you were dead. And he goes, that kind of cuts me off as a, as, a, as a son. So I'm not worthy to be called a son any longer. What needs to happen is I'm going to realize the grace of my father who actually still gave me my inheritance when I told him I wished he was dead. And I've watched the workers who worked for my father and he was gracious to them. They're not face down in a pig trough they're they're eating okay. So if I have to work for someone else just to survive because I squandered all my inheritance on wine, women and the world, maybe maybe I should just go to him and I should ask, "Let me just be one of your hired servants because I'm no longer worthy to be a son. My inheritance is gone, but please let me just work for you because you're gracious." So he makes this humble journey back. And a, in the very next verse, it says, I'll just read it for you. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son tried to explain, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out my best robe and put it around him. Put a ring upon his finger and sandals upon his feet. Bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Do you know the only way that the father would have known and be able to see his son from afar off before he'd even breached the property line of his father? The only way that he would have been able to do that is if he was waiting and anticipating, looking out the window, hoping that this might be the day of my son's return. You know, in fact, I know I'm a father, and if this ever happened in my life, the moment that I gave the inheritance away and watched my child walk away... I'd be standing there every single day waiting out the door hoping that today might be the day. And that's exactly what this father did. He stood watching out the window hoping that today might be the day that my youngest son who told me he hated me and has probably learned from the world that the world is not nice that he would come. They would come home and he'd be my son. And before he can even breach the property the humble walk home the father comes running out that door. He collapses on his son. He covers him in his robe, the family colors, to say, You are mine. He puts a ring upon his finger. A Song of Solomon says, A seal upon the arm as the seal upon the heart, like, You are mine. He puts sandal upon his feet just because he's being kind, because he has no sandals. He's walking on unpaved roads. And he wants his feet to no longer hurt. And he says, kill the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. My son who was lost, who was dead, is now alive and is found. Let's celebrate. But someone at the party thought it was unfair. Someone at the party thought it wasn't very cool that we were throwing a party for the younger son. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As it came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. And he said, your brother is here, he told him. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. Verse 28, then the older brother, he became angry, didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. He replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, you, yet you've never even given me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who told you that he hated you, comes back, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, slaughtered the fatted calf for him, the father turns to his son, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours." But we had to celebrate rejoice because the brother of yours who is dead is alive again. What was lost is now found. Listen, what he's saying there gets breezed over so much. The father's looking at him going, look, you're firstborn. You're first in the birth order. Everything I have is yours. His inheritance is gone. He squandered it just like you said. So everything you see is yours. You're always with me. But see what you're doing is you're saying, "Hey, dad, why haven't you kept score on this guy? He told you he hated you, he told you he'd rather you be dead, he said, "Give me my inheritance now." He took your money and he 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 just squandered it. And now he comes back expecting to be celebrated. Guess what you do? You do it. He comes back expecting, not knowing what was actually going on in the younger brother's head. He comes back expecting and you graciously take him in. This is not fair. How could you love like this? The father never kept score. That's how he could love like this. While the brother, the brother did. The brother kept score. And the question I have before we move to the next point is this. Who do we look more like? The father who keeps no score, no record of wrongs, or the the older brother who was trying to do it right said, I've never disobeyed you. I've been with you. I've slaved for you. How is this fair? Who do we sound more like? More important question, who does Jesus expect us to look like as his church? I'm going to go to a really important um, passage that's, that uh, I also think gets overlooked because it's someone whose name shows up in Scripture only a few times. But uh, it's played such an impactful role on someone else's life that we hear about all the time. And I want to bring him up because I think that this person in Scripture is found in the Old Testament. The book is 1 Samuel 18. This person had a kingdom perspective. He had a kingdom mindset when it came to relating to others. And his name was Jonathan. See, Jonathan was the prince. He was the son and blood heir to Saul, the king. And he was the one who was leading as general the armies of Saul. And wherever he went, he was rather successful. He grew up in the palace and he was being groomed to be the next king of Israel. But something happens. In 1 Samuel 15, if you read, it says that Saul disobeyed a direct command of God. He decided in his pride that he wasn't going to be told by God what he could and could not do. And so he offered sacrifice when that was reserved for the priest. It was the only thing the king couldn't touch. And he just, he just couldn't keep himself from it. Does that sound familiar? You can eat of any tree but this one. And what, what do you want more than anything when you're told no? I want the fruit of that tree. And I want to offer sacrifice because I'm the king. So it says that, that Samuel was told to tell Saul that you've been cut off. Your kingdom will end. That God has already chosen another to take your place. And he's already been anointed. And he says that this, this boy has a heart just like his. Well, in Saul's mind, that might mean naturally that Jonathan is about to take over, which is his son, and he's the blood heir, so that would make sense. But God had a different plan. In fact, it wasn't even found in that city. He went to the city of David, the Bethlehem, and he found, he found a man, Joash. And he found him, and he said, look, I believe that one of your sons has been anointed as the next king. How many do you have? Eight. okay. So they parade them through, they walk them through the first seven, the youngest of which, the eighth, is out watching the sheep because surely it couldn't be the youngest. In the birth order of things, that would not make sense. You following? In Jewish culture, that wouldn't make sense. He would be the least of these. So he's not even invited to the party. After all seven walk through, Samuel goes, "Um, Do you have another son? Because it's none of these. He goes, well, I do, but like, surely it's not him. He's just, he's the youngest. He's way out here. He's in the, he's a shepherd, but he's like watching the sheep so these guys could come to the party. He says, call your son. The moment David walks in, Samuel goes, this is him. That's him. God made him aware that he was the anointed king of Israel. And Samuel literally places hands on him and anoints him as king right there. After that, you see David. Slay a giant. After that, you see David be the one who can play a harp, and it it kills it soothes the distressing spirit that was sent by God upon King Saul. You see David move into the palace. You'll see David marry Saul's daughter, become his son-in-law. You'll see David become best friends with somebody in the palace, and guess who it is? First Samuel eighteen. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship. Jonathan loved him as much as he loved himself. Hold on, time out. So the prince, the one who just got passed over, the one who's the blood heir to the throne, the one who's the rightful rightful next king of Israel, becomes David's best friend, It says that he loved him like he loved himself. Second greatest commandment was love others the way that you'd want to be loved, right? Or I love the way John says it actually, love as God intended. He does this in David's life. And I believe that because of his willingness to step aside, the practice we're about to see in a moment, I believe this is why David had the heart that he did after God. I think Jonathan played a key role in in showing David what that looks like. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, it says that he loved him like he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house in Bethlehem. But Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. And then Jonathan, listen to this, Jonathan removed his rope and he covered David with it. Just like the father that we just read about He takes the princely robe that was his. Everyone sees this robe and they recognize that's the next king of Israel. And he takes it off and he places it on David. Not only that, he takes off his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And he hands each of which to David. You see, the next man in line would have been someone who had to be respected as a military leader, a general to the armies of the king this was Jonathan's role. He literally steps aside, not only as prince next to be king, he steps aside as general. And says, line up behind this guy. Because God has anointed him. God is doing something in him. God has already seen him slay a giant. I can't do that. This is the guy. And he's my best friend. He said, all I want to do is be this guy's biggest cheerleader. All I want to do is be this guy's most humble servant in the kingdom. And thrive in this person's kingdom. Because God is doing something with this person that he was he's never done with me. And though I'm the bloodline, that guy's the right line. And Jonathan willingly puts everything on David. He does what our third point in this passage is. He passes it on. Jonathan had a heart and a kingdom perspective that understood it's more important what God wills than I what I want. It's more important to join God in what he's doing than what I aspire to in my own personal dreams, in my own selfish dreams. It's more important to be about what God wills than what I want. God is working and doing things in David. I just want to be his biggest fan. Jonathan had a perspective. He understood something that maybe we don't. In our effort to be right. In our effort to be justified. Jonathan knew something. He seemingly understood in advance. I don't know how he did it. But he knew. He knew that in the kingdom the last shall be first. And the first shall be last. He understood if God was doing something in David. That his biggest role was to be able to step aside. And become his biggest cheerleader. It says that he loved him as he loved himself. He passed it on. There's... That quote I promised you from C.S. Lewis, let me just read it. C.S. Lewis writes about the problem of forgiveness in our own lives from the book, The Weight of Glory. It says this, You must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or hurt him or to pay him out. The difference between this situation and the one in such you are asking for God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other peoples, we do not accept them easily enough. Let me say that one again. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily, but in others, we don't accept accept them easily enough. One must therefore begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man, the one who harmed you, the one who hurt you, was not so much to blame as we thought. Even if he is absolutely full of blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% guilt which is left over. To excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian character. It is only fairness. Is life fair? No, that was not. Is life fair? That doesn't come from Christian, that comes from a right to be fair. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I want to show you this um, in an illustration. Jesus was in the Gospels found, and there was a plan. The plan was to ensnare him. There was a woman caught in the very act of adultery. In the very act of adultery, the law required that she should be stoned to death. And so the Pharisees, understanding this, but also understanding how gracious Jesus has been in his teaching, do something. They set up an entire scenario where they can, they can make it less about what she did and more about how he responded. And they wanted to ensnare him to make him out to be a heretic. They wanted to diminish his ministry. So what they did was they throw her at his feet and they say, hey, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Don't tell us how we know, but we know. We watched her do it. Don't tell us how we know because we literally set the whole thing up. We literally watched it happen, but she was caught in the very act of adultery and the law requires that she be stoned to death. What say you? So Jesus standing, it says he knelt. He says he got down on the ground and He began to draw in the sand. And we don't know what he drew, but we know he drew in the sand. And it says that Jesus' response was, He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Scriptures say that one by one, each of those men began to walk away. Because their sin was great. When no one was left, she fell down at his feet. And he said, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, They're they're all gone. He said, well, if they've left and they have nothing to accuse you with, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, in our lives, I feel like I identify more with the Pharisees. You see, I've caught people in the very act a million times. Hey, I've been slandered. I've been lied about. I've been cheated. I've been stolen from. And... You know, in my life it's really easy to uh to keep record of that stuff, you know? It's really easy to keep score. I don't know if you're like me, but I remember. I remember. See, I'm from East Nashville. We don't we don't throw stones, we throw bricks through windows, you know? And 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 that's how we do it. And you know what? When you I'm going to say this, this is really that was a joke, but this is more serious. If we don't get this right, the whole relationship choice, we're going to continue to see, listen to me, church. The big is responsible for it, but you can only own what you can own. I can only own what I can own. If we don't get this right, we're going to continue to see schools shot up because somebody has a broken heart from broken relationships and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to forgive. So they make everyone else hurt as bad as they are hurting. So I can do that. I can he slandered me. She she lied about me. She stole from the weak and she took advantage of the vulnerable. And I can, I can stack up a million stones that I can, I can hold. And in Matthew 18, it says that wicked and unforgiving servant was turned over to the torturers. Well, tell me, let me explain to you. It's not fun to try to carry this stuff around. And as I begin to continue to build cases against all these people who have hurt me, it's like putting bricks who are very heavy in a low thread count pillow. that can rip at any point. It's like throwing and stacking up weight in my frail existence that is already broken and ready to rip at any point. That's why I'm stacking up stones, because I'm hurt. And I can carry them around waiting for that perfect moment for God to align the stars where I can break out my bag and start chucking them all. But see, that would live opposed That would live opposed to what God had done in me and what God expects of me. Matthew 5, he goes on and says, we're to love our enemies. He said, you're just like the tax collectors when you love those who look like you. The tax collector was the scourge of their society. You're just like the lowest of the low if you just love people who look and sound like you. You become something else. You become a Christian when you're willing to forgive even all that's been done to you because I promise you it's far less than what you did to me. See, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve the cross that you earned. I didn't deserve to take the pelts from the people that I gave sight to who were blind before they met me. I didn't deserve... To hear the shouts of the mute that I gave their voice to say crucify him when I willingly walked to the cross. I didn't, get to, I didn't get to hear the deaf cry out when I was the one that opened their ears and say kill him. You did. I did. We deserved that. And he willingly stepped in front of all the stones that should have been cast in our direction. Jesus took them all. And here's what I want to say to you. We, his church, all he expects is this. That we would care more about the needs of those around us than we would our own. That we'd become selfless and a little less selfish. That we'd stop seeking to find fairness And we'd stop seeking to keep score, but we would simply pass on the forgiveness that was given to us to others. He's looking for us to cast honor on people. Could you imagine that? What if we cast more honor on people than we did stones? What if we, the people of God, trusted what Jesus did and we saw the honor he cast on us to give us life when we deserved death. He came running to us when we made the humble journey and he fell on our neck and he covered us in his, in his colors. He made us his family, sons and daughters of God. What if we thought to cast honor even on our enemies? What if we bless those who are trying to get one over on you? What if we loved those who hate you? What if, we, what if we sought to pray favor over those who have sneakily thought to persecute you and to take you down? What if we just loved them so much that they couldn't, even if they went through with their evil plans, they could know one thing of us, that we reflected him. That they could know one thing of us, that we looked more like Jesus, the very church that we gather in. And under the umbrella of Jesus, gather to worship the one who set us free, the one who took it when he didn't have to. What if we as a church became more about casting honor than we did about casting stones?